this is the in focus podcast from the hindu welcome to the hindus in focus podcast i'm zubeda hamid your host for today Ahead of the 2022 United Nations Climate Change Conference or COP27, which is scheduled to be held in Egypt next week, medical journal The Lancet released a report, The Lancet Countdown on Health and Climate Change: Health at the Mercy of Fossil Fuels. An India fact sheet based on this report reveals alarming numbers. Heat-related deaths increased by 55% over the last 20 odd years. The number of months suitable for dengue transmission has been rising. reaching 5.6 months each year and in 2020 over 330000 people died in india due to exposure to particulate matter from fossil fuel combustion and these are only some of the health impacts brought about by climate change for years now experts have been warning of what climate events can do to disease patterns to food security and nutrition levels to maternal and child health and to mental health too India is already burdened with communicable diseases, the increasing incidence of non-communicable diseases, and now faces the challenges of climate change to public health in a healthcare system that has already seen its limits stretched during the COVID-19 pandemic. So how exactly do increased warming and other climate change effects play out on our health? How is our country placed to meet these challenges? And what can be done at a policy and personal level to help reduce the impact of climate change on our health? To speak to us about this and more, we have with us today Dr. Purnima Prabhakaran, Director, Center for Environmental Health at the Public Health Foundation of India. Good morning, Dr. Purnima Prabhakaran, and welcome to the Hindus in Focus podcast. Hi, good morning, Dr. The Lancet Countdown report on health and climate change, which was released recently, has said that over the course of twenty years, from around two thousand to twenty twenty one. Heat-related deaths in India increased by 55 percent. For some years now, experts have been pointing to the number of heat waves in India. We know that the country reported 280 heat wave days from March to May this year, the highest in 12 years. Can you explain to us what increasing levels of heat do to our health? Yes, of course. Thank you. So yes, the Lancet Countdown report on climate change and health that was just released um, has yet again. put forth some really strikingly alarming indicators for health so far as the heat waves are concerned in india it is not just the numbers of heat waves that we are seeing but it is also the frequency at which they occur as also the intensity of the heat waves that has only been increasing year after year in terms of impacts of exposure to heat waves on human health they are very many they could range from simple heat exhaustion and syncope of fainting from exposure to extreme heat to the other end of the spectrum where extreme heat exposure and dehydration can cause extreme impacts on various organ systems of the body and that could be ranging from exacerbation of cardiovascular illnesses for example heart attacks and strokes to impacts on the renal functions as in the kidney functions because extreme dehydration could also impact our renal system so the impacts are also dependent on the age category so at the extremes of age so young children infants and 
adults over the age of 65 are extremely vulnerable to these um, impacts of exposure to heat waves. Additionally, uh, the exposure to heat waves has impacted our working populations. So uh, given that India is largely an agrarian economy, a large proportion of our uh, working segments are people uh, in the farming sector and the agricultural sector. So exposure of our farming uh, populations to extreme heat has impacted farming farmers' health as well. And uh, I, I think the ramifications are multiple in terms of the indirect impacts that farming households have felt in India. Uh, so the mental health of farmers and increasing rates of suicides. So I, I think that in a sense, in a nutshell, is a spectrum that we can see of both the direct as well as indirect impacts of exposure to heat waves on health. Do we do we have any studies in India, doctor, about how uh, heat has been impacting? You said largely the agrarian sector. So there are uh, pockets of uh, research that do happen and have happened over the years in India. So exposure of farming farmers in particular and impacts on farmers uh, farming suicide levels. I think uh, the reason being that the rising temperatures have also impacted uh, crop productivity. So um, that has impacted farmers. Uh, health and mental health and has resulted in suicide. So there are studies on those lines, but there's also uh, um, studies, uh, the evidence base is growing on impacts of exposure to extreme heat on, uh, for example, maternal and child health. I think we are starting to look at some some of those uh, aspects of exposure to heat health as well. So separate categories and occupational exposure. So different types of um, uh, people, the categories of occupational groups like traffic police, for example, are exposed for standing for standing for long hours, not just to extreme exposure to extreme heat, but also to air pollution. So there are uh, specific occupational health research um, pieces that have occurred over the years. Doctor, you just spoke about air pollution and uh, occupational hazards. Uh, the Lancet report also pointed to a large number of deaths uh, with regard to air pollution. In 2020, the report said that over 3,30,000 people in the country died due to exposure to particulate matter from fossil fuel combustion. We know that air pollution, especially in Delhi, we hear about this a lot in the news, it's becoming an increasingly becoming a public health hazard. Uh, what can India, where biomass accounts for 61% of household energy, do to reduce this? So you're right. I mean, exposure to particulate matter, and, and that is, we're speaking about exposure to outdoor air, the ambient uh, air, air pollution. Uh, so that has become increasingly uh, a public health issue in India, especially in the last, uh, I think, from around 2015, 2016, I think was the inflection point, where the deterioration of air quality has become like a drawing room conversation increasingly, especially in the Delhi NCR region. But I want to caution us over there that, you know, it's probably because the number of ground monitoring stations that monitor the air quality are very inequitably distributed in India. So in Delhi, we, we have much more monitors. We have about 20 uh, ground monitors that are uh, placed by the Pollution Control Board, whereas there are many parts of our country where there are no ground monitors. So where you don't know what the air quality is, you're probably not going to talk about the quality of air in those geographies. Uh, nevertheless, uh, not to discount the fact that there are statistics and growing evidence uh, to show that overall India has deteriorating air quality over the past few years and it has very many impacts you know, on health of uh, human beings and um, it has uh, caught 
headlines, not just nationally, but also internationally. In terms of the contribution by, um, you know, household energy sources and biomass, for example, uh, it contributes a good chunk uh, to the poor air quality in our country. But having said that, it has remained and continues to remain one of the main sources of cooking, uh, heating in our rural uh, households. And there have been some programs and policies that have tried to address this. For example, the Pradhan Mantri Ujwal Yojana, which tried to kind of uh, provide cleaner sources of fuel, the LPG, to these households, had somewhat of an impact in, in helping the transition to cleaner cooking fuels. But in terms of ensuring sustained use of such clean sources of energy, um, there has been no remarkable evidence to show that it is true on the ground. And the reasons are very many, uh, providing that first cylinder, but not making sure that people have access to continued sources of uh, the clean cooking fuels. It's also about behavioral change. There are households that do have the LPG, they have access to the second cylinder, but are not completely comfortable using LPG for cooking. Um, And the reasons are many. People are talking about their rotis tasting better when they cook on the traditional modes of, um, you know, uh, fire in the in the households. So I think uh, there has there's much to be done in in terms of making more impact and changing people's behavior in adopting cleaner forms of energy. It's not just about providing uh, access to clean cooking fuels. It's it should it should be not just available. It should be accessible. It should be a sustainable source for for these households. And I think a lot to be done also in communication, behavior change communication, talking to rural women, for example, on the health impacts of exposure to these forms of uh, cooking fuels, what it can do to not just their health, but also to the health of their children who who spend many hours with them in those often one-room tenements. Um, I think uh, lots more to be done in terms of communication and awareness building, sensitizing these uh, people about uh, the health impacts of exposure to dirty fuels. Biomass is one aspect, Doctor. What are the other aspects we need to look at when it comes to air pollution? So in terms of sources of um, you know, p- polluted air, there, there's very many and they could be different in different parts of the country. So the, so the major contributors are the power plants, the coal-fired thermal power plants. The burning of fossil fuels is one of the prime uh, factors responsible for not just uh, polluted air, but they're also one of the chief climate pollutants. So addressing fossil fuels, the burning of fossil fuels is one of the most important interventions, the public health interventions that people could adopt to address the the co-benefits it can have for health. So uh, fossil fuel combustion is one of the prime factors. We also have industrial activity, traffic pollution. Um, in, in some parts of the year and some parts of India, we talk about stubble burning as, as one of the main sources of air pollution. There's also waste burning, uh, construction and demolition activities. Uh, all of these have, um, from at various points in time, been responsible for um, air pollution in different parts of India. So addressing the issue requires a very uh, coherent um action plan that can address the sources based on the uh, apportion, the source apportionment studies, as we call them. For example, a city of Delhi, uh, traffic pollution is one of the main uh, sources of air pollution, which could be different in, in, in another city. It's probably industrial activity or brick kilns um, or stubble burning. So we need to establish air action plans that would address uh, the main sources in, a, in an incremental fashion. 
Doctor, another point made by the Lancet report was uh, about dengue. That the number of months suitable for dengue transmission by the Aedes aegypti mosquito rose from the 1950s and is now presently 5.6 months each year, which is practically half the year. India reported 1.93 lakh dengue cases last year, the highest in six years. Could you explain to us what the increased number of months means and how this has happened? Yeah, over the years, I think the changing climatic conditions has become more favorable for these vectors. The vectors are the disease transmitting agents. In this case, we're talking about mosquitoes. So the transmission of the disease has become more favorable in terms of the vectors becoming more, what should I say, equipped. Uh, really, to reproduce, they are able to um, travel uh, longer periods and higher levels. And what has happened is, over time, these change, these favorable climatic conditions has ensured that these vectors are spreading to parts of the country that have not been seeing these kinds of disease patterns in the past. So, for example, the northeast or the southern parts of India. I mean, off late in the recent years. The patterns of dengue, um, chikungunya, Japanese encephalitis, all of these vector-borne diseases has changed remarkably. And the fact that it is now uh, prevalent for a longer period of the year is attributable to these changing climatic conditions. And, and unless we um, address uh, these factors and become equipped to de- uh, you know, deal with these disease burdens, we see hospitals being burdened with number of cases of dengue every every year at this time. So it has ramifications not just uh, for the health of individuals and households in terms of health as well as uh, the cost impacts, but also on the health systems who are being increasingly burdened with facing this um, increased footfall due to these vector-borne diseases. So there's much to be done to, um, you know, to adapt ourselves as well as the health systems right from prevention to actually dealing with this disease burden at the health system level. Doctor, how much do we know about monsoon patterns, heat, and uh, say urban migration playing a role in in, in changing dis- disease patterns for vector borne diseases? So there's a lot that's being done. So there there are actually uh, specific domain uh, you know institutes that cater to just research around these topics. So there is a National Institute of Malaria Research. We do have a national vector-borne disease control program uh, that is established by the Ministry of Health that is continuously, uh, you know, looking at uh, the patterns of these disease, the trends in different cities. And there's a, a integrated disease surveillance program that is looking uh, looking at surveillance. So there's weekly uh, turnaround of data uh, that that comes in uh, on the patterns of these uh, different diseases, the infectious diseases. So. Um, uh, in terms of the changing meteorological variables that are favorable for these vector-borne diseases, again, there, there is some work that is being done there that is enabling people to have some kind of early warning systems uh, in, for disease outbreak that comes from not just the surveillance uh, and the data that comes from those uh, initiatives, but also some kind of modeling efforts. So uh, we ourselves are involved in a, in a uh, research study with partners from Belgium on developing a climate and health information service for both heat sensitive illnesses as well as vector-borne diseases. Um, So at city level, we will be providing urban planners with a kind of information dashboard that shows prediction scenarios for heat sensitive illnesses as well as vector-borne diseases, in particular malaria and dengue. So with those kind of resources, um, innovative methods of equipping uh, city planners 
uh, hopefully uh, the adaptation response in the future uh, will be uh, better. Does it have a lot to do with, uh, say, an increased amount of plastic pollution, which has been pointed to one of the reasons, as well as uh, mass movement from villages to cities? So plastic pollution is a, is another form of environmental pollution that has kind of garnered a lot of interest, I think, right from the ministry, the Union Minister for Environment, Forest and Climate Change. There's been a lot of effort and initiatives that have been launched for banning the use of plastic and you know, single-use plastic in particular. Uh, but I guess the COVID pandemic kind of played a, a, a very impactful uh, role in that the use of single-use plastics for both hygiene reasons and, you know, for example, the protective covers that people use, masks, all of these, I think, kind of uh, fueled this uh, environmental pollution caused by plastics. And there was nothing at that point that people could do because it seemed like the best option to use. So um, that has played out and has had ramifications, not just for pollution and increasing quantum of plastic waste that was generated during the pandemic, but it also has found its way to other parts of our ecosystems. Water pollution, our water bodies have gotten polluted by a lot of plastic. It enters, for example, you know, cattle grazing around where there are heaps of garbage with plastic. It has impacted as well as marine, marine, um, you know, life that has uh, been affected by this plastic pollution of water bodies. So I, I think we have a lot to do in terms of changing mindset of people, uh, you know, from prevention, uh, moving away from the use of plastics, not just in our daily lives, but also we do a lot talking with health systems as well, because there's a lot of use of plastic in healthcare as well. Uh, plastic tubings and uh, disposables uh, have contain a lot of plastic and uh, the, the, there's a lot of uh, work that needs to be done to address this issue. Doctor, can you give us a broad picture of what we are going to see in the future? The, the Lancet report, as we discussed, pointed to heat waves, to dengue, to air pollutions as major health risk factors due to climate change. How else does climate change affect our health, uh, specifically in India? And how is India, which already has a communicable and a non-communicable diseases burden, placed in this regard? So uh, the Lancet countdown report is is actually a grim reminder of what is transpiring, not just in India, but globally. And um, I, I think what it does every year is it looks about it looks at about 40 plus indicators across five different domains from mitigation to adaptation uh, responses to, um, you know, seeing how media covers climate change. They're as wide as that, the indicators that they look at. For India, I think the impacts of climate change, we could just um, summarize as both direct as well as indirect impacts. So the direct impacts are on human health, for sure. So there's exacerbation of all the uh, you know chronic diseases that we can think of. There's example, exposure to air pollution or heat waves tends to exacerbate uh, respiratory illness, cardiovascular illness. It also has impacts on uh, nutrition status. So not just by directly affecting uh, access to food, but also the raising, uh, rising temperatures have impacted, as I mentioned before, crop production. So the fact that the quantum of crops being produced can be affected by rising temperatures means that we have um, a impact not just on food security, 
the rising temperatures also affect the rates at which the major crops mature and that affects the nutrient content of crops so what we are going to see playing out on the ground is malnutrition at both ends of the spectrum so crop uh, and food insecurity can lead to exacerbation of undernutrition in many parts of the country but also because of the lack of uh, food people might transition to you know accessing more processed foods which is going to fuel another ep- epidemic at the other end of the malnutrition spectrum which is overweight and obesity and these three pandemic like you know we talk of this triple pandemic of undernutrition overnutrition as well as climate change three pandemics together um, which has been termed as the global global syndemic so this is a another impact of climate change the impacts on the nutritional health of our populations in addition to that we have waterborne diseases so post uh, you know floods and cyclones and storms uh, there's going to be storm water overflow there might be increase or surge in waterborne diseases now that can have ramifications not just on infants and children and the elderly but people who have uh, a poor sanitation already poor sanitation and hygiene around their households these things get exacerbated and waterborne diseases can have impacts on human health as a result of these changing climatic conditions i think last but not the least i would talk about mental health so uh, post traumatic uh, stress disorders anxiety depression the lack of access to food impacts on access to education healthcare we have this whole concept of climate refugees people having having to move uh, from their regular place of habitation because of changing climatic conditions for example post a flood uh, there's going to be impacts on access to all the basic services so that leads to cl- conflict and uh, climate related anxieties we have this whole concept of um, uh, climate anxieties impacting all categories of our population so mental health is an important outcome of changing climatic conditions in terms of impacts on um, i talked earlier about india being an agrarian economy and uh, what it can do to affect uh, farming households i think that's an important uh, part that india needs to address because there's loss of labor hours um, occupational groups that are exposed to extreme temperatures can be uh, losing laborers because of uh, extreme temperatures and that plays out as loss on, of income to households so uh, impacts on livelihoods so direct and indirect impacts um, of changing climatic conditions in a nutshell really are going to impact india's uh, social health and economic um, uh, indicators uh, we are one of the most vulnerable countries so far as the global climate risk index is concerned why are we one of the most vulnerable countries doctor I I guess we have a lot to do still I think uh, uh, you may know that you know every country at the time at this time of the year uh, when we are just short of the uh, annual climate conference the cop meetings uh, so we're just about a week away from the climate meetings that is an opportunity for the 180 198 member states to convene and take stock of their climate commitments and uh, India uh, as do many other countries submitted summits their nationally determined contributions which is really the country level commitments uh, so far as um, climate change uh, adaptation or mitigation is concerned so we have often looked at uh, the way these climate policies or commitments are not really taking health impacts into account and um, i think that's where some more work needs to be done so far as we are concerned 
the Ministry of Health um, does have a national program for climate change and human health and is working to develop a framework for adaptation, um, uh, you know, from the health sector. So there's a lot that's being done to equip uh, states uh, with a state action climate plan, and uh, which necessarily means not just developing a framework, it also means starting out with a vulnerability assessment. So India is like a like countries within a country. We have multiple states with different climate vulnerabilities. So I guess a very uh, cogent approach would involve first a vulnerability assessment at state level for people to ad- address what are their prime uh, climate vulnerabilities and then take off from there in terms of what adaptation responses they need to develop, which necessarily means not just sensitizing, for example, their health workforce on the health impacts of climate change. It's something that is an, uh, that has not been addressed yet. Climate change and its impacts or even air pollution and its impacts is not something that we learn still in medical school curricula. So there's a lot to be done in sensitizing the health workforce, equipping them for the adaptation to deal with the growing disease burden that's going to come from climate sensitive illnesses and making the health workforce also not just equipped, but equipped, but empowered to deal with all of that disease burden. In addition, I think we need to provide them with the resources to do that. So there's often, we fall short of doing that. We're not providing the right resources. Our health systems are overburdened. And we saw that during COVID recently. Um, There's much to be done to strengthen the workforce, the health workforce and the public health infrastructure. So I think there's work to be done. It's not just the health sector, though. The health sector can show the way um, by showing leadership, um, you know, mitigating their own climate footprint. Uh, But it also means talking to other sectors. So, for example, the energy use in health sector or the way we use our water resources in healthcare, uh, each of those has a climate footprint. In fact, uh, the health sector contributes about 5% of the global greenhouse gas emissions globally. And at every country level, there's a commitment that needs to be done to build climate resilient health systems that are also environmentally friendly. And so our national program for climate change and human health under the Ministry of Health is doing a lot in that space as well uh, to sensitize our health sector to become not just resilient, but also uh, environmentally friendly and deliver sustainable or climate smart healthcare. One last question, Doctor. The Lancet report mentioned urban green spaces in helping combat heat and air pollution. Can India do more in this regard? I, I think there's a commitment at the highest level uh, to do that, to increase uh, you know, the green spaces, to increase forest cover uh, and carbon sinks. And I think that commitment was already made in the previous uh, COP by the Prime Minister. It was one of the things that they had committed to. Um, and urban green spaces are certainly going to be helpful in terms of uh, cooling and um, not just helping from that perspective, but also green spaces motivate people, for example, to get out for physical activity. And I think that has ramifications even for mental health. There's research that's shown that, you know, proximity to green spaces does uh, remarkable things for depression, uh, for example. So urban green spaces, yes, definitely uh, in uh, helping in climate mitigation, but the carbon sinks can do much for helping to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions as well. So there's a lot to speak for in terms of enhancing green spaces. Thank you so much for speaking to us today, Dr. Gurnama. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. It was my pleasure. 
In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.